Uh, we'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, 5 to 6, 18 to 19, and verses 24 to 28. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to, Ar to Archaea, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace and who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So on Christmas Day, uh, Disney Pixar released their newest film called Soul. Now, uh, aside from the uh, Gnostic paganism that kind of undergirds the whole main storyline, it's a really good movie. Uh, I would highly recommend reading it, uh, reading it, watching it. Uh, and let's be real, what, what Disney movie doesn't have pagan undertones? I think they all do. Uh, but the main premise of the movie is this, okay? The main pr uh, premise is that the main character is searching for what is known as the spark or the reason for living. Now, the story centers around a music teacher named Joe Gardner, a man who loves music more than anything, and he desperately longs to be an accomplished jazz musician. But for, the, uh, for most of the movie, he's miserable because that success just hasn't come. And he feels like he just needs to give up that, uh, on his spark, his purpose. He's very frustrated. But over the course of the movie, he realizes that music... Though a passion for him is not actually his purpose. Music was not what ought to make life worth living for him. Rather, life itself was the spark. Life itself was the purpose. Now, from the Christian perspective, we have categories for that spark as well. You know, Christians uh, tend to uh, dress up those pursuits in holy language, and we refer to them as our callings, right? That we all have some kind of calling that we need to discover. 
Christians take uh, what might very well be a a God-given gift, and we try to turn those God-given gifts into the sole reason why we exist, our passions. However, passions, though we may have them, and I think most of us do, they are not our purpose. There's a huge difference. They might contribute to your purpose, but they are not the purpose itself. If all our passions, all of our interests, all of our pursuits were to be stripped away, our true purpose would still remain in life. So what then is that purpose? I'll be right up front with you. No cliffhangers today. I'm going to give it to you right at the front. For all of uh, you good Presbyterians, we've done this before, but do you know what the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is? That question being, what is the chief end of man? Does anybody know it? One of you die, oh good, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man, our great purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why you have breath. That is why you have life, talents, gifts, passions, pursuits. All of those things are penultimate to glorifying God. And so today, I want to continue on in our series, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, by considering calling And I want to consider what it means to know and embrace and follow the calling that God has on our lives by looking at the several people in our passage who too had to come to certain realizations about their true calling in life. And here's what I think we can learn. There's three things I think we can learn to really be able to embrace our calling well. That our calling is to be future, I'm sorry, present-oriented, future-minded, and Christ-centered, right? To discover our calling, we need to be present-oriented, future-minded, and Christ-centered. Let me show you what I mean first with present-oriented. Consider the people that are here in the passage, right? We need to look at what's happening throughout. There are four people that Luke, the author of Acts, considers. He tells a bit about the Apostle Paul, about a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and then finally about Apollos, Now, Paul, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, they were all tent makers, they were all Jewish, they were all Christians, and they all ended up in Corinth, and as a result, they ended up living and working together as tent makers while Paul continued his ministry in local synagogues. And I think it's probably fair to say that the three of them, and we'll get to this in a minute as to why, likely didn't expect to end up in each other's lives. They ended up in some pretty unexpected circumstances. You know, for Paul, I didn't put all of this in the reading, but Paul, as he tends to do when he's uh, in ministry, he runs into some ministry challenges during this time. So he's preaching to the Jewish people, and as he's preaching to them, he's experienced quite a bit of rejection from them. And so in essence, what you have is you have Paul working really hard as a, as a tent maker while also doing ministry on the weekends, so to speak. And in the end, that ministry is not going well. And you can sense Paul's frustration in verse 6. Let me just reread that to you. He says, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You can sense the frustration that the man has. And so with that, he does. He does just that. He leaves and he goes to preach to the Gentiles. Then you have Aquila and Priscilla. 
Now, they were obviously in a very difficult situation if you caught what was going on there with them. They were forced to leave Italy, their home, which is why they ended up in Corinth to, to begin with. They had been forced out by the authorities because they were Jewish. Now, I can only imagine how disorienting and difficult that must be to have to leave your home because of your ethnicity. Now, the text doesn't say this directly, but just based on human nature, I have to assume that they were at least discouraged and disappointed that they were forced out of their home. But in that disappointment, it's interesting, in Corinth, they meet Paul, someone they would not have likely met otherwise, and they begin to serve together. And we know that there was a deep bond that began to occur between the three of them because in verse 18, we're told that when Paul left for Ephesus, they went with him. They would end up joining his ministry, a ministry that they otherwise would not have been a part of, except for the fact that they were faithful to meet up with Paul and work with him in Corinth. And then finally, you have Apollos. Uh, while uh, they were in Ephesus, there was another, this other figure uh, in verse 24. There's a guy named Apollos. And there's a few things that we know about him. We're told first that he was a learned, educated man who knew the scriptures well. We're also told that he was this great orator. He was very good at public speaking. And that he was a man that had conviction and boldness about preaching Jesus. But here's what's interesting. That while in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla, they hear him, and after they heard him, they pull him aside because they notice that there were ways in which he needed to grow in his understanding of God. In other words, he stops his grand preaching ministry in order that he might grow and be discipled before he continues. And in particular, to grow and be discipled by two tent makers. Now, if you know anything about gifted, talented, bold preachers, stepping into seasons of obscurity is usually not on the radar, right? Because there are big things ahead. God's got big things for him to accomplish. But here we have this great orator, someone who likely could have gotten far on charisma and powerful speaking, but he stops to learn and to grow. Now, this is a little bit of a side note. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent, because I, but I think it's important. We'll come back to, uh, to those three people. But I find it interesting, particularly as we consider these two tent makers who are investing in this preacher who's growing in popularity. It's important, I think, to note what the Bible calls the priesthood of all believers, that we shouldn't discredit the priesthood of all believers. Aquila and Priscilla, they are quote-unquote lay people. They're tent makers. But they were also called to the ministry of the word. Every Christian is called to be a minister of the word. Some do that in vocational ministry, vocational preachers, and others do it as, as tent makers. They take the word and they help others learn the word, grow in the word of God, grow in an understanding of who God is through their own experiences. I also find it interesting in this passage that throughout every, all the, everything that we've read, you have Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila, who is the husband, is always named first. Until you get to verse 26, which is where they begin to talk about investing in this young preacher. And if you look at verse 26, 
you see that it's not Aquila's name that's there first. It's Priscilla's name that's there first. That's there first. Now, you might read that, gloss over it very quickly, and it may seem rather inconsequential, but I don't think it's inconsequential at all. I think Luke was very intentional about what he did there. Because throughout the New Testament, and especially in the case of Luke's writing, Luke is constantly subverting the dominant ideas of the broader patriarchal society. Because for some, there was the erroneous idea that men could not learn from women. I mean, that was as much nonsense back then as it is now. And so what we have here is Luke making clear that Priscilla was likely the one who was doing a lot of the investment into this young preacher. It's him subverting the dominant cultural um, perspectives on how women ought to be investing. That the voice of women, the wisdom of women, the knowledge of women are vital to the health and growth of the church. I say that only because Luke is making very clear that that needs to be said unless anyone assume otherwise. Scripture continually undermines the idea. But back on point. Why am I framing all this? Here's why. Paul's initial attempts at ministry seemed to fail. Priscilla and Aquila were, in essence, exiled from their home. Apollos had to stop a seemingly thriving ministry in order to stop and listen and learn and grow. They all might not have fully understand why they were experiencing their present circumstances, but they all embraced those circumstances because, back to my main point about calling, they were present-oriented. And they sought to achieve their true calling by glorifying God, regardless of the circumstances that they found themselves in in the moment. Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos could have all thought, my calling's been thwarted, or what I... God, what God wanted from me, I can no longer do. And that could have led to a bit of a discouragement that would have kept them from being able to see what God was doing in the moment. Now, if, if Paul, if Paul were to end, have ended up at this point living the rest of his life as solely just a tent maker, never ever having any kind of successful ministry again, his calling would have still been to glorify God. It would have remained. If Priscilla and Aquila never again returned home or to the life that they once lived, their calling to glorify God still remains. If Apollos never preached another powerful sermon and forever lived in obscurity, his calling to glorify God would have still remained. This is why being present-oriented is so important. You might miss what God is calling you to do right now. Now, as a pastor, over the years, I've counseled many people who have been concerned about their future. We're going to get to what it means in a second to be future-minded, but they've been concerned about their callings for the future and what God has for them in the future. And rightly thinking about the future is important, but there is a faithfulness that God is calling us to right now that we will miss if we are overly future-minded. Give you an example. For those who might be thinking about careers in the future, that's okay. But how can you glorify God and be faithful in the job that you have now? You know, for those who might be uh, thinking about marriage one day, that's okay. But how can you be glorifying God and being faithful in singleness now? 
For those thinking about upcoming educational pursuits, that's okay. But how can you glorify God and be faithful in your current educational pursuits? For those that are uh, thinking about financial security for the future, that's okay. But how can you be faithful with the resources that you have right now? I mean, the list could go on and on. What are the ways in which you think about the future? And rightly so, it's good to think about the future. What are the ways, though, that you can be faithful now? What is it that God's wanting to do in you now that you will miss if you're so future-oriented? I mean, bottom line, if you want to be faithful to whatever God is calling, whatever God calls you to do or be or to accomplish in life, that calling is going to always primarily to glorify Him and be faithful. And that starts now, wherever you might be. All right, but that said, being present-oriented, we need to also be future-minded. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, a desire to be faithful now does not preclude us from thinking ahead and planning for the future. In fact, in some cases, it seems to me that a lack of future-mindedness often results in unfaithfulness in the present. And what I mean, as we've said, for those who are overly future-minded, you do tend to lose all sense of present faithfulness. But those with no future orientation also tend to make really unwise decisions now that affect their future. I think we could show that to be uh, true uh, with uh, this reality is true for everybody that's in our passage. I mean, just quickly, let's consider. If Paul didn't continue to be faithful in the midst of his failure— and the failure of ministry to the Jewish people, he would have missed the opportunity to minister to the Gentiles, specifically the ones that God had brought to his, uh, across his path in this season of discouragement. If Aquila and Priscilla were not faithful in their exile, they would have likely missed traveling with Paul and meeting with Apollos, a ministry that would extend far into the future. But Apollos is probably the most interesting to me. Apollos is this bold, fervent, talented preacher. If he had only been present-oriented, he would not have seen the value of stopping to be taught and to grow with Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, I mean, he's a man who's on his way. Why does he need to be invested in, especially invested in with two tent makers? But he saw the value of it. There, was a, there had to have been a future-mindedness to him that allowed him to see the value. And I do wonder, what would have happened to Apollos if he had not been invested in, if he had not taken the time and he had just kept rolling with his boldness and his charisma? If we are here and we want to be people who are faithful to God for the long haul, the older I get, the more I realize how much intentionality plays in accomplishing that. Stating that I want to be faithful to God, to glorify God for a lifetime, that's good, and it should be a good goal, but I realize more and more how intentional one needs to be in order for that to happen. You know, as an example, over the years, I have either counseled people or I've heard stories of others who have fallen into significant moral failure or burnout, or addiction, or the like. And while there might be many reasons why 
this occurs, one of the most universal commonalities is that people were not future-minded. They were overly present or overly uh, minded about what was happening in the present, not thinking about the future. And they often did not consider how their present actions are going to impact their long-term faithfulness. I mean, future-mindedness means that we think about the kind of people we want to be and then intentionally develop rhythms that get us there. Obviously, for me, and maybe I just resonate with Apollos in some ways, but it seems to me clear that this man desired a long-term faithfulness, which is why he felt like he needed to stop and listen and slow down. It affected how he saw his present because he sought to have this long-term faithfulness. And often I find that people who do not take seriously what it takes to end well are people that are not thinking rightly about the kinds of things they're doing now. If we want to be kind and generous and honest and hardworking and faithful people for many years to come, that doesn't just happen. It takes intentional investment. It takes a future-mindedness to consider such things. You know, I, I was trying to think, what are the different ways that this kind of plays out? And I, one of the things that I think has resonated most with me personally, and I extend to you, is how, just as an example, how we think about things like generosity. Thought a lot about this, not only as a pastor, but also in a personal life. You know, when we talk about being generous, it's one of the things, you know, it's rare to find somebody who's going to say, I don't want to be a generous person, especially as it relates to giving. I think most people would say, I want to be generous and I want to be able to give and give, give significantly. But what I find to be also common, right? it's not that uncommon to find people who don't want to be generous. What's more uncommon is often, not that people don't want to be generous, but that they don't intentionally put themselves in positions to actually be generous, often because they're so present-minded. And I know for myself, I have found myself in that exact position before. Right, to be so future-minded that we don't consider, we consider more about how we'll be generous one day without considering how we can be generous now. Let me just give you an example of this. Uh, one example of generosity, of course, would be what we call the tithe. Now, we've talked about this at length. I won't get into it, but I'd encourage you actually to go to reh.nyc slash give if you want more on our perspective on tithing. But the, the tithe was the Old Testament uh, 10% that was given and everybody gave basically as a starting point uh, for their giving. Now, we actually believe that the Bible calls us to, to far greater feats of radical and sacrificial giving, but 10% usually serves as a really good baseline kind of giving. And people might say, you know, I hope that one day I can give my 10% when I make more money one day. But here's, here's some of the things, that, again, I'm bringing this up because I've wrestled with this deeply even for myself, but here's where I would maybe push a little. That's a future-minded thing, and that's good. I want to be generous, and I want to be able to give that 10% of my income one day. But too often, having that kind of future-mindedness doesn't allow us to see that that same future goal is also something that God calls us to now, that faithfulness now. It's a way of building character and habits in us now. And when we do that now, it does produce for us a lifelong opportunity to grow in generosity. There's other ways that this can be uh, employed as well. You know, being faithful in my job now actually prepares me to be faithful in whatever jobs I will have ahead. 
Being faithful in educational pursuits now will lead to opportunities to be faithful in pursuits in the future that maybe I otherwise might not have had. In our families, again, something I think about quite a bit, being overly present-oriented might help us for a while justify always being busy and not spending time with our families. It's very easy to get wrapped up in what's happening now, but being future-minded means that we realize that we can't do that. We, we have to think now about what uh, will impact our families going forward, the kinds of trajectories we're putting our family on. It all matters now. That future-mindedness helps us see that. And what about something like Sabbath rest? You know, it seems <clears throat> justified at times to work relentlessly in the moment. But rest assured, that will not produce long-term faithfulness. It will result in burnout. And I bring that one up also for myself. Maybe it's helpful for you. But a future-mindedness is so important for long-term faithfulness in all areas of our lives. God has given us particular resources. He's given us particular relationships. He's given us certain desires, all of which are good. But we must be future-minded so that we can be present in ways that get us to where we believe God may be taking us. Okay, now I know, I don't know about you, but even as I unpack all of that, that actually feels very overwhelming to me. It feels overwhelming to think that I need to figure out how to make my present circumstances all that they need to be in order for me to have a future that doesn't falter and doesn't fail for the long run. That's a lot to manage. It's a lot to consider. It's a lot to pray through. Which is why we must not only be present-oriented, future-minded, but none of that matters if we're not Christ-centered. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse uh, 24 and 26. I find this really interesting. Let me just read this for us quick. It says, he was, this is Apollos. Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, I've been sitting with this passage uh, all week. I've been studying it, trying to understand what's going on here. And here's what, here's what was tripping me up a little bit. All right, so verse 24 says that he knew the scriptures. Now, those scriptures for him would have mostly been the Old Testament scriptures. He knew those well. But then it also says in verse 25 that he taught about Jesus accurately. Okay, so he knew the scriptures. He taught about Jesus adequately. But then in the end, it says that he needed someone to help him adequately explain the way of God to him. Now, immediately that feels a little bit all over the place. He knows the scriptures, he preaches about Jesus adequately, but he does not know the way of God in the way that he should. See, there's a way to know scripture, to rightly articulate who Jesus is, and yet at the end, still be missing something. And what is that? Well, there is a way to know about Jesus without deeply knowing Jesus. You know, I can articulate all the glories of the doctrines of Christ and impress with knowledge and insights about the truth of Christ, and yet internally, 
have no real transformation that comes by experiencing Christ. Apollos, being a preacher, makes it really easy to show. Yet you want a preacher who can teach about the power of Jesus accurately, for sure. But even more than that, you want a preacher who has experienced the power of Jesus in their own life, who clearly knows the way of God. Those are not the same things. It's important for us all to recognize that. Knowledge does not necessarily mean we've experienced Jesus. I would rather have someone, and over the years I've experienced this for sure, I would rather have someone who struggles to articulate the doctrines of the church, but whose love for Jesus overflows out of them because they have experienced him. Then someone who can impress you with words, but knows not the power of God, the way of God. And so to be Christ-centered when considering our calling, here's where this ties in, it means that we center our lives, our thinking, our pursuits, our hopes, our present and our future on an experience that we have with Jesus himself. Until we experience Jesus, we cannot glorify him in our present orientation or our future-mindedness. We need to know him, not just know of him. So the question, of course, is then how can we experience Jesus? Well, we experience him by remembering that Jesus has come, and in his coming, he himself has shown a present orientation and a future-mindedness that allows us to be united to him in profound ways. Hebrews 12 says this, and this verse kind of struck me given everything I've been, I've been thinking about with this present and this future. Let me just read this for you. First part of Hebrews 12 says this, it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, hear this part, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I mean, do you hear what happened there? Jesus had a present orientation by going to the cross, meaning he was faithful in his presence, even though that presence for him at the time was painful and hard. But he did so with a future-mindedness. It says, for the joy set before him. What was that joy? I mean, we were that joy. He endured the cross for us because he had us in mind. He was present-oriented, future-minded, and he accomplished this for our sake so that we might be unified to him. And I love how this passage then encourages us to remember such things so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. It's when we remember what Jesus has done that we are now able to be so deeply shaped by this experience with him that we can now think rightly about our present, think rightly about our future. Being faithful for the long haul, it's not going to be enough to just plan things well or try to do the right thing right now. It's going to take being Christ-centered because looking at Jesus is going to be that which gives us strength and wisdom and insight and clarity about what God desires for us, both now and into the future. 
Experiencing the work of Jesus means trusting him in our present and trusting that he holds the future. I mean, the most beautiful part, part of Hebrews 12 is the glimpses of Christ on his throne. A throne which he sits on now and a throne that we will one day get to see. I mean, talk about a future-mindedness. There's our hope of a future. And so may we, as we live our lives in response to what Jesus has done, have that kind of future in mind. Now let's close with this. Three quick questions for us to consider related to what we've said. Number one is how can I be more faithful in the present? I trust the Spirit of God will make that clear to us. How can we be more faithful to glorify God in all areas of life in the present? The second, though, is how am I not intentionally being future-minded? Meaning, what am I missing? What am I not doing now that would better uh, shape me for a lifelong life of faithfulness? How can I be more intentionally future-minded? And then finally, and probably most importantly, how am I not trusting Jesus with my present and my future. There are ways that we're all not trusting him as we should. And again, I would trust that the Spirit of God will make those plain to us. Let's pray. Father, uh, God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for the hope that comes in the power of his resurrection. We thank you that he was faithful in going to the cross that he was future-minded by having our salvation in mind. And we thank you for the hope that we have to know that he's seated on his throne right now. Lord, I pray that all of that would shape us so profoundly that we would become a people who are faithful in our present, that we might be faithful into the future until one day you call us home. Lord, would you help us by your spirit to do such things? In Jesus' name, amen.